Sponsor StrongDM is secure infrastructure access for the modern stack. StrongDM proxies connections between your infrastructure and sysadmins, giving your IT team auditable, policy-driven, IAC-configurable access to whatever they need, wherever they are. Find out more at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. This episode of Day 2 Cloud is brought to you in part by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for all you amazing Day 2 Cloud listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. ITPro.tv slash Day 2 Cloud and use promo code CLOUD at checkout to save 30% off all plans. Just before we start the show today, keep listening past the end. We've got a tech bite where we're going to be chatting with VMware. Don't miss it. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today we're talking about OPA. Hey, OPA! It's the OPA, the Open Policy Agent, and we have Anders Eckert, a developer advocate from Stira to steer us through the conversation and the nuances of what OPA is. What jumped out to you, Ethan? What was that, awesome? That I did not know what OPA was all about exactly. I thought it was, oh, it's a security tool. It's some sort of a Kubernetes-related firewall or something. I don't know. And as I dug into this, doing the research for this show, Ned, that is not exactly what it's all about. Yes, there is definitely a strong security component to OPA, but it does so much more. Yes, it's just it's a wide open decision maker. Essentially, you give it a policy, it makes a decision. But you know, we're going to dig into all of that and more with our guest Anders Eckner, developer advocate at Stira. So enjoy the conversation. Well, Anders, welcome to Day Two Cloud. We're very excited to have you here to talk about OPA, or or I think it's pronounced OPA. Um, but we're talking about Open Policy Agent, and I understand you uh, discovered. OPA or OPA through your own personal journey. Can you expand on that a little bit and define what OPA is along the way? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and first of all, like, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, so yeah, my uh, own OPA journey started, uh, I think it was three or four years ago, uh, where I was, I was in a team where we, and we had, for the last few years, we had worked on uh, kind of solving identity for that uh, company where I was at at the time, mm -hmm. where you have all these standards, you have OAuth, you have OpenID Connect, you have like Skim for user provisioning and so on. Uh, but we could we we kind of failed to find anything when when we tried the same thing for authorization. Uh, so that's it's basically how I found OPA eventually, uh, which pretty much by random. I I went to KubeCon in Barcelona that year. And uh, we saw a couple of talks about OPA and those talks were primarily, I think, targeting the, the Kubernetes crowd. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense for a, for a conference named KubeCon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so they, weren't, they weren't really targeting like the app authorization use case. That, that was kind of the scenario where we were in. We had uh, a few hundreds of microservices, or I think we had 700 microservices wow. and we wanted and, they, and those were distributed amongst, I think, 30 teams or something like that. And these teams had come, come and gone like via mergers, acquisitions and, and whatnot. So some of them were doing Python, some of them were doing Java, some .NET. And the problem with that is that when you, have, when you try and solve identity, you have a centralized component. You have an identity provider or you have many identity providers but they all go in via some form of like centralized component, which is your identity server. So when your users log in, there's commonly some single sign-on provider or single sign-on solution. Uh, so no matter how many products you have, like they can log in using the same, their same credentials. And, and it's all kind of, it's, it's not something that it's kind of opaque to the user. They don't really know what's, going on uh, beneath there. Mm -hmm. But the problem with authorization, which, it, which also makes it so much more interesting, is of course that it's, and especially for distributed systems, is there isn't really a centralized component that you can rely on because authorization decisions 
they happen everywhere. Like you only log in once, right? And then that can, that's kind of persisted for, for a long duration of time. But authorization needs to be done like everywhere and all the time. So if you can kind of try and delegate that to a central component somewhere, that's going to be slow. And it's going to be a bottleneck of your, of your entire like security stack. So that's kind of, that was kind of the, the premise or the challenge uh, that we were facing. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how we, how we discovered OPA. Okay, that, that puts a lot of pieces together for me because I've, I have fought the authentication dragon before trying to get everybody on a single sign-on or, or using the same identity provider. That's difficult enough, but then you're talking about how, how many, like 300, 700 microservices that all have some sort of authorization they need to, ta- to use in addition to the authentication. Like, yes, I know that you are who you say you are, but what, what should I allow you to do in my little sector of the microservice? So that's, that is a tricky problem to solve. So do you think of OPA as a security tool? Is that its primary function? Because policy is the name, so that makes me think of like compliance and regulations more than more than security. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know if there's like a perfect category other than like the policy category itself. <laughs> but but yeah, I think I think it's mainly concerns. The main concern is is probably security, and I think like often what we call compliance or regulations they kind of fall into that domain somehow too uh so at least a lot of the the regulation that we see people uh, use policy for or the the kind of uh, rule sets and so on whether they are whether they try to conform to some standard or some regulation or whether it's organizational rules and policy it's it's still kind of i think it's i think it's fair to call it to kind of place it in the security category. One of the words you used when you were describing OPA and your journey to finding OPA, OPA, sorry, I got to say it. That, that's the right way to say it, right, Anders? OPA? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. OPA is the right way to say okay, it. Okay, okay. There's, so. there's, two, there's two, two pronunciation challenges included here. There's OPA and there's the, the language, the policy language of OPA, which is REGO, which is spelled yes. R-E-G-O. So there's a lot of people saying Rego, which, so yeah, there's, there's these two, <laughs> we, we have, we invented two concepts and, and there's, there's these <laughs> discussions and pronunciation of both. So okay. I guess we fail there in, in some respect. Well, no, no. I mean, you, you write in the docs, you say OPA, and then you give a phonetic yeah. how it is pronounced uh, and Rego as well. That's right. So we That's went right. into that. Okay. We try our best there. So on your, your journey there of discovery around the, not the authentication problem, as much as the authorization problem, the, uh, the need for ongoing authorization, you, you ran into OPA, OPA. I, I did it again, OPA. <laughs> so does that mean OPA would have something to do with zero trust? Oh yeah, for for sure. I think like uh, the basic idea behind zero trust uh, is 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 pretty much that you don't assume anything around identity, and you don't assume anything around permissions. So, but you rather verify that in each step along the way, which is, which is even more uh, of a requirement when we talk about this distributed systems and distributed architectures. So the old way of doing it is, of course, you, you just put a gateway in front of your systems and you'd had the gateway verify the identity of the caller, maybe do a lookup in some permissions table, and then it, it would just forward that, that request back to the backends. And the backends, they would do, do nothing about that because obviously the gateway, the request must have passed the gateway on its way here. And uh, that already did this verification. So there's obvious there's one obvious flaw with that model is and that's of course like once you're past the gateway, yeah. it's an open highway. Yeah. There's there is no verification, there is nothing. So if anyone or it doesn't need to necessarily need to be like a ma- malicious actor, it could just be a, an internal system running inside of the cluster, which would not go uh through that gateway on on the kind of the perimeter of, of the system. So you could, of course, if you're if you're aware of this, you might want to still go through that, but it's not going to be like a hard requirement. 
So the zero trust model kind of it assumes nothing. You just verify identity, and if you, if you if you don't pass the identity check, you don't pass the permission check. There, that's where the request stops. So, so, so yeah, so, yeah. Sorry. Well, so why why OPA to solve this problem particularly? You you went on a journey there and ended up at OPA. But if we focus on ongoing authorization, if we focus on zero trust, there's a yeah. lot yeah. of entrance in that space. There's a lot of software and technology that's been thrown at this problem. What was it about OPA that you were like, this is it, this is the one? Yep, well, that's a good question. I think, I think for the zero trust model to work, you need something very lightweight and you need to deploy that as close to your service as possible. Because you don't, you, what you want to avoid is, since you have to do it all the time, you want to avoid the latency overhead of calling a service in another part of the data center or, or even worse, another part of the world. That's just not going to scale. Like if you add 10 milliseconds to, for any hop to a service just to do authorization and there's 10 services involved, you have 100 uh, milliseconds of latency overhead and that's even before you you kind of done any business logic. So so the way OPA solves that is commonly that you deploy OPA as close to your service as possible, which is which is commonly called a sidecar pattern. If you if you're familiar mm -hmm. with uh, how Kubernetes does things, so it's basically running OPA on localhost. When you query OPA from your service, you say uh, you send a query to localhost and you get a you get back a decision because that's basically what OPA is. It's a decision engine, so you can uh, offload that from your from your service. And rather than having the service determine should a doctor be able to retrieve these medical journals, you say OPA should this doctor be able to retrieve these medical journals? So it's it's basically like a, an oracle for authorization or policy decision. Ah, oh, okay. It's interesting to see how a lot of these zero trust or just these networking models in Kubernetes move to more of a decentralized model. Whereas before you're talking, you had that gateway or that load balancer that was kind of like the bottleneck for all traffic. And once you got inside the network, it was sort of the, you had the hard crunchy exterior and now this soft gooey interior. Yeah. yeah. Move that if you wanted to use that firewall, that gateway, you had to send the traffic back out to it. And that added latency and processing time. And then you also had to spend a lot of money on a really big firewall appliance. Yeah. The solution that, that I've seen uh, from a networking perspective is to, no, let's move it as like a sidecar proxy next to the service that's running. But wait, that sidecar proxy can do more than just networking uh, firewall rules or whatever. It can now do policy and stuff like that. So I, I think it's a really interesting model. Um, yeah, definitely, and and I think it's it's a pretty common trend with all these kind of gateway vendors. They're moving they're moving their gateways in to be proxies uh, on top of each individual service, rather than having this like one big monolith component to do that. Um, I do want to get digger. I want to dig deeper into that, but first I want to back up a second because I, I have this habit of zooming way in on things. <laughs> and, um, I just I want to get a little more background on OPA and, and where it came from. So who who is behind OPA? Who's developing it and maintaining it? Yeah. So yeah, that that would be my employer, which is Styra. So Styra is uh, it's actually. For me, uh, funny because I'm a I'm a Swedish citizen, and Styra is a Swedish word. Originally, one of the founders of Styra was from Finland, so he kind of brought that word with him to the states uh, and and founded when they founded that that company. the The domain name was luckily available. <laughs> so Styra it means steering or to navigate or to to govern really, which is. Uh, it's pretty much what uh, what Styra adds to OPA. Uh, since OPA is a distributed component, you and again we we were talking about having OPAs running in for seven hundred microservices, which means basically in a zero trust model you'd have seven hundred OPAs running in your cluster. So eventually, uh, you're you're going to want to have a way of of managing that, and that's that's basically what Styra provides. It's a control plane to manage OPA at scale for 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 large organizations. 
So is is OPA? I thought OPA was uh, was open source, or was like was the free open source model, or or is it also a paid model? There's no paid model for OPA. There's no enterprise edition. There's only the open source OPA, and uh, I think I think to to me that's that's also uh, that was also something important to me when I when we adopted OPA in our organization. I don't really like when you have to pay for security. Uh, or like when you have to add things like single sign-on or things that are, to me, they are like basic requirements. They aren't things that I'd like to pay for. I can definitely understand, like if you're a, if you're a large organization, uh, you pay for large organization needs mm-hmm. or requirements. That makes sense to me. Uh, it doesn't make sense that you should pay just to have like ba- a basic feature set for security. So the business model of Styra was appealing to me, uh, both on, on that side of, of, of the uh, equation. And of course, now that I'm uh, here. Well, okay, that's a fair question. Then what is Styra getting out of it? Because if uh, there's money that's going into open development, um, how does Styra, if this is truly free open source software and there's no premium model, what, what are they getting out of it? Yeah, that's a good question. So, like, so, so while OPA is the distributed component, it comes with uh, a few capabilities for remote management. So there's there's a feature called bundles, which basically means that you configure your OPA to go and periodically fetch policy and data from a remote endpoint. Mm. And there's another feature, or like one of these management features for decision logging, so that each decision OPA takes can be logged and sent to a remote endpoint. There's a status API to report like the health of, of your OPA instances and so on. So, so basically Styra is the on the other side of those calls. So it provides a control plane and a management API for OPA. Okay, yeah, and that's, I think that going back to our decentralized conversation where you are kind of sprinkling these pieces throughout your architecture, you need some sort of centralized component uh, control plane, if you want to call it that, that's uh, managing and orchestrating the rollout of policies and, and verifying that they're successful and that you can prove that through an audit trail if you need to. And yeah, that right. tends to be, that's usually the thing that people end up having to pay for. So you can you can try out the decentralized thing and there's probably a way to hack it, to hack a control plane together that you don't have to pay for. But if you're doing it at scale, if you're doing it as an enterprise, or if you need to prove to auditors, then like the paid version with support maybe makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I think like I, I I tend to like that business model because it doesn't stop anyone from like if if you're a small company, you have a like a handful of services, just throw your policies up in an S3 bucket, send your logs to I don't know Logstash or whatever people are using these days. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be as nice, but for for the requirements of a small organization, you, you'd come a long way just using like open source tools or whatever cloud providers you you have already. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious since OPA is open source and it's very general purpose. You mean like you've really people can do whatever they want with it, and when people can do whatever they want with it, people do really weird things. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I'm curious. I, I, have there been some really weird use cases people have tried to? like add OPA to, and does that impact the roadmap and scope of the project? Oh yeah, uh, there's been, I think like as for weird cases, I think there was one, I saw a repository where someone had used OPA to write like an RPG engine, <laughs> like a role, a, a role play game engine. Basically that's, it's basically what an RPG engine is, isn't it? It's like you, you provide some input, and you get back a decision. So you kind of wield your sword against the helmet of your opponent and you throw a <laughs> dice in there and then you get back like, did it hit or not? So so that, that was that's probably the most odd use case I've seen for OPA. Wow. But, but I think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like when I think about playing D&D, it's all just a decision matrix with different... Yeah, it is, ways. isn't it? So yeah, that's wild. I love that. I'll have to find that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll send you the link after. I think I can find it for you. 
Of the more mainstream use cases, Anders, would you say that OPA is HTTP-centric or are there other protocols that it could cope with as well? Yeah, it's it's definitely HTTP-centric. I think it's pretty much had to be given like the wide range of technologies that can integrate with OPA. It's, it's basically like HTTP, it's like the, the lingua franca of, yeah. of, of the modern times, isn't it? So HTTP is the protocol. But like what's sent over the over the wire is just JSON. So your queries to OPA are JSON, and the decisions you come back are also JSON. So that's kind of how OPA can be used across this wide set of different heterogeneous technologies. It's like because most of them understand HTTP or can be kind of or you can kind of retrofit an HTTP client in there somewhere. So, yeah. so yeah. yeah, so HTTP is definitely the, the common way of doing it. There mm-hmm. are a few other models for deployment we, we have experimented with. There's um, a WebAssembly option where you can compile your mm-hmm. policy in, into WebAssembly mm-hmm. and have that evaluated in, in any system where uh, a runtime for that is available. And there's been a, a few other like projects to, to allow OPA to kind of exist in, in places where we might not have access to to HTTP or JSON, but that that I mean that's the communic that's the control channel, if you will. Um, we're delivering JSON payloads over HTTP between the two endpoints. The whoever is asking yeah. uh, OPA and OPA returning the response. What about the resources that OPA is protecting? Would it be only uh, HTTP oriented services, or could I protect, say, an H- an SSH service as well? Yeah, you definitely could, uh, and and there's there's even an integration to do that precisely. But most of these integrations, they still kind of work by somehow fitting in an HTTP client there to query mm-hmm. an OPA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's also the Go, like since OPA is is written in Go itself. Uh, there's you can if if your service is running Go, you can just use OPA as a library. So that's another option, of course. No, the the Wasm uh, in, in particular is interesting to me because we did a whole show uh, about about Wasm uh, not too long ago, and what kind of jumped out to me is you can package up a Wasm build into an OCI format and put it in a registry, so you could kind of like publish your uh, maybe I'm I'm just I'm kind of spitballing, but you could publish your OPA like wasm images or whatever into a registry and just have them automatically be pulled as part of a deployment and then just have them run so i that's really neat that you could do that yeah it, it definitely opens up a lot of doors or for us where where we might not have where we might have struggled to run like opa the traditional way mm-hmm. like using a server or you might not have like networking or you might not have the resource allocation required to run OPA in, in some environments. Like I, t- I talked to some developer the uh, the other week where they were talking about like, we'd like to, they were writing software for cars. Mm. And uh, so that's kind of a res- resource constrained environment I yeah. can imagine. So, so they couldn't really run like the OPA server there, but WebAssembly might be an o- a viable option for them. Right. Yeah. I've seen, especially in edge type edge computing deployments where you do have that sort of constrained environment. Yeah. WebAssembly seems to be t- taking off a bit and being able to just bake it right into there. That's useful. <laughs> that is really useful. Yeah. Um, when w- I was reading through the documentation, uh, one of the things that jumped out to me is architecturally o- OPA decouples policy decision making from policy enforcement. Right. What does that mean uh, in practical <laughs> terms? Yeah, so in practical terms, it means like OPA can tell you what to do, but it can't enforce that. So if, because the whoever is asking the questions, it's going to be on them to actually enforce those decisions. So you ask OPA a question and OPA provides you an answer, but what you do with that answer is still going to be your responsibility. So if OPA says, uh, I, yeah, no, this person should not have access to these files. Like if you're if you're having if you're 
using a web service, that might be the correct response might be to, to return a 403, like unauthorized response. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if in some other context, you might want to contact the authorities or you might want to do, <laughs> I don't know. So, so that's enforcement, right? What you choose to do with that decision, that's enforcement. And in some cases you might, you might even say like, yeah, this is a dev environment. So even if this is not allowed, like we're still going to do it because this isn't, it, it's not, we might just log that this was a violation and it's going to fail in production. So, so that's basically the difference between making decisions and then actually acting on those decisions. That's enforcement. And OPA doesn't do enforcement because it's so highly context specific. We, we don't know like how, how, how we should do that. That's going to, that's going to have to be up to you. Right, right. How do you write an enforcement engine that will, you know, <laughs> yeah, what happens in a car operating system versus, yeah. uh, you know, something that's going to be serving up web pages versus something that giving file access and just like, yeah, that don't do that. Leave that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Saying, I can tell you what the decision is based off the policy you've written, and then you can do whatever you want with that information. Yeah. We pause the podcast for a couple of minutes to introduce sponsor StrongDM's Secure Infrastructure Access Platform. And if those words are meaningless, StrongDM goes like this. You know how managing servers, network gear, cloud VPCs, databases, and so on, it's this horrifying mix of credentials that you saved in PuTTY and in super secure spreadsheets and SSH keys on thumb drives and that one doc in SharePoint you can never remember where it is? It sucks, right? StrongDM makes all that nasty mess go away. Install the client on your workstation and authenticate. Policy syncs, and you get a list of infrastructure that you can hit. When you fire up a session, the client tunnels to the strong DM gateway, and the gateway is the middleman. You know, it, it's a proxy architecture. So the client hits the gateway, and the gateway hits the stuff you're trying to manage, but it's not just a simple proxy. It is a secure gateway. The StrongDM admin configures the gateway to control what resources users can access. The gateway also observes the connections and logs who is doing what, database queries and kubectl commands, etc. And that should make all the security folks happy. Life with StrongDM means you can reduce the volume of credentials you are tracking. If you're the human managing everyone's infrastructure access, you get better control over the infrastructure management plane. You can simplify firewall policy. You can centrally revoke someone's access to everything they had access to with just a click. StrongDM invites you to 100% doubt this ad and go sign up for a no BS demo. Do that at strongdm.com slash packetpushers. They suggested we say no BS, and if you review their website, that is kind of their whole attitude. They solve a problem you have, and they want you to demo their solution and prove to yourself it will work. StrongDM.com slash packet pushers and join other companies like Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime. StrongDM.com slash packet pushers. And now, back to the podcast. So then let's drill into this then. Describe how we get from policy to enforcement. So OPA is going to give some some requesting, uh, some requestor an answer. Yes or no, you're allowed to do this thing. So the requestor has got to know how to ask the question, which you said is, is a JSON representation. So there's going to be some kind of a packaged up JSON payload that gets sent to OPA. OPA is going to look at that and look at its policy and know that yes or no, this is approved. Send a JSON payload response back to the requester. And then the requester is going to go, oh, I can do this. I'm going to allow it or I'm not allowed to do this. I'm going to run, run my packet filter, uh, disallow this command or, or, or whatever yeah. it is. Is that so? So the requestor, how does it know how to talk to OPA? Is there an integration? Yeah, it's or like how it knows like what type of data to provide that's going to be that's going to be have to be like agreed on out of band so for since opa is kind of agnostic to that and it's also general purpose like the way this works if you if you take like the kubernetes api for an example you can have opa be on the receiving end of a webhook for dynamic admission admission control which basically means if you say kubectl apply and you provided a, a deployment or something like that. The deployment as the JSON model of the deployment is going to be provided to OPA as your input. So that's going to be kind of the query. Is this deployment 
good to go or not. So OPA then, based on the policy that it has been provided beforehand or loaded into OPA, along with any kind of environmental data, that could be like a user database, that could be the state of the cluster. You might want to have a policy that says like, you can deploy an ingress controller, but you can't overwrite a path of a previously existing ingress con controller because that's that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna be a, a big problem. So you, you might want to have access to the, to that type of data, what's already in your cluster, so you can use that for for your decision making as well. So based on policy you have and data. So in this case, of course, the policy would be that we want to allow any new deployments uh, or any new deployments of an ingress controller. Uh, if there's a conflict in, in host paths or paths and so on. So that, that would be the actual policy. And then the data is then provided both as part of the input, which is the new ingress, and existing data, which is like the current state of your cluster. So, so that, that could be one example of decision made based on like what's provided from the client. And just in this case, the Kubernetes API. But... The client could be a microservice asking an authorization question or whatnot. It's as long as it's JSON or YAML, that's something we can work with. Mm. Right. The key to me with that in the Kubernetes example is there's already this construct of admission controllers in Kubernetes that are yeah. that's their job is to intercept requests and make a decision, you know, yay or nay, and then they can use. Uh, you know, OPA to help them make that decision. But that enforcement layer already exists in Kubernetes. So yeah, you exactly. have any other thing that you're trying to integrate it with, it needs to have that pre-existing enforcement layer or you have to write that and then have an integration through that enforcement layer with OPA. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's kind of, I think OPA predates uh, Kubernetes admission control with a, with a year or two. So okay. it wasn't, it wasn't, like built with that purpose in mind, but once, once, and, and of course, like Kubernetes admission control, I, I don't think was built with OPA in mind, but still, <laughs> it's still, it just worked from day one. Like once they released that feature, you could just point that at OPA and it would work just as you, you'd expect, which is kind of, it speaks volumes to like the, the, the idea of OPA really that. You don't really need to 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 build these specialized integrations as long as you have HTTP, you have JSON. It's just pretty much just going to work. Mm. What what if I want to run OPA at scale? That is, I may be asking OPA for decisions um, for thousands of requests per per minute, something like that. Do I have to build out an OPA cluster, or something like that? Yeah, you might need to do that if if for the for the Kubernetes model where you, or the cube API or admission control, where you have like, there's a lot of servers asking you're pointed at an OPA endpoint somewhere. In that case, you might wanna, you, you're probably gonna need to scale out your OPAs as well. Uh, we, do, we don't really do like state. There's not like when you send something into OPA, it, it doesn't modify the state of, of the store. Like you just provide some input and you get some, uh, you get the response back. There's no like modification uh, done along the way. So, so in general, I think like just adding up new instances or having them removed is is quite like undramatic compared to other yeah. components in 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 our cluster. Right, you're going with that decentralized model if you're attaching a sidecar. So as your app scales out horizontally, you're Policy processing power also scales out horizontally. Yeah, exactly. You add an you add a new pod, and that pod contains your service and OPA. So as your pods scale up, you scale up OPA as well. It's like pretty much done automatically. Okay. Now we we've kind of danced around this a little bit in terms of the policy language Rego, uh, but I do want to dig into how it works and and what it does. Uh, and do you, do you have any background on where the name came from? Why why Rego or R E G O? That's a good question. I've I know I've heard this uh, sometime, but I cannot remember what what it was. <laughs> so no, I I don't think I have. No, I can't find right. 
Well, just generally speaking, can you give us an overview of how the policy language is constructed? And, you know, we're not trying to learn it in in the next 15 minutes, but just how, how easy is it to pick up and start using? Yeah, of course. Like, first, I think there's there's two, or there's a couple of principles behind like Rego or the design of Rego, which is basically that a Rego policy should mirror a, a real world policy. And, and a real world policy, what is a real world policy? It's basically a set of rules. Mm. So, so I'd say that's like the main concept of Rego is that, you, is that you're working with rules. So you have a policy document or a package, and then you add rules to that uh, policy. So it, it's meant to be read pretty much like any other policy, like if this or that, then either allow or deny and so on. So it's, it's basically like elevating the if else or if then cost to <laughs> yeah good. it's a really long else if or a case statement but it but yeah, it isn't it's, yeah it's basically yeah. it's basically what it is it's like it's 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 turning the if then clause around or just kind of turning it onto its head so rather than saying like if this and that and that and that and that is true then do this because there's there's not a whole lot of side effects in Rego, remember? So there's now like the den clause is going to be pretty, that's not going to be where the action is. It's the actual if, that's the policy or that's the rules. So OPA kind of turns that around, Rego turns that around and it says like allow is equal to true. And then comes the if, if all of these conditions are true. And so that's kind of the anatomy of a rule. You say, this should be allowed if all of this is true. And then you can add more if you have kind of uh, or conditions. You want to have, you might want to say like, uh, the request should be allowed if the user is admin or the request is targeting a public endpoint because anyone should have access to those. So the way you'd work with that is you'd have one rule that says allow if admin and the other one would say like allow if requests.path.whatever is equal to public or I don't know, images or some, some other public. And then you just add more rules as, as, you, as you'd need. So, so I think that, that was that's kind of the basic design of Rego to kind of mirror the needs of a policy where, where you have all these conditions. That's really what a rule is, it's just a bunch of conditions. Like when you require this and that and that and writing that as kind of a traditional if else clause is kind of, it's kind of cumbersome. Mm-hmm. I'm going to interrupt the podcast for a minute here to talk about IT training. You remember the ransomware attack on the gas pipeline last year? It caught your attention probably, it caught mine. There's a key thing here. Cybersecurity professionals are in demand to prevent that kind of thing, but there are not enough humans out there to fill all the positions. There's over 500,000 open cybersecurity roles. You can become a cybersecurity professional if you get some training, some online training. It is never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. IT Pro TV has you covered for your training. They cover everything, CompTIA to Cisco to EC Council to Microsoft. They've got all of it, including the cloudy stuff. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training. And and the way they present the information, you know, some presenters are like, they're reading from the book and they're super boring. That is not IT Pro TV's format at all. They use engaging hosts that they're going to present the information in a talk show format and really keep it interesting. And they do it live. They, they're live every day. And then once they recorded that live show, it goes studio to web in 24 hours. As you're digging through their website, looking for content, all the courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, job role. You can find what you're looking for without a lot of trouble. And then when you pick the thing and you're ready to go, you can stream IT Pro TV's courses, uh, either the live stuff or the on-demand stuff from anywhere in the world via whatever platform you like, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or there's apps on iOS or Android. Learn IT, pass your certs, and then get a great job, maybe in cybersecurity, with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash day2cloud for 30% off all plans. Use promo code cloud at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash day2cloud. 
to cloud. Day to cloud is day, the number two, cloud, and then use promo code cloud at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash day to cloud and use promo code cloud at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's get back to the podcast. Now, Rego, I spent quite a bit of time digging through Rego docs just to get a feel for it. And there's lots of documentation there and it feels like a fairly full-fledged programming language. Are there tools, IDE-style tools, that are going to help me write OPA policies? Oh, yeah, for sure. There's, uh, there's a plugin for VS Code. Uh, there's one for IntelliJ IDEA. And I think there are some, like, managed by the community. There's some for Emacs, for Vim, or all these editors, pretty much. But the, both the VS Code and, and the IDEA are, are managed by, by the open source, like, or the, the, the OPA project. Okay. And yeah, look at, looking at the language, it does seem relatively straightforward. And you can kind of tell that OPA is Go-based because uh, Rego also has kind of a Go feel to it a little bit. Um, at, at least it's it's in the name, at least. Rego. I don't I don't think I don't think Maybe I don't think that's where it came from. Um now, I imagine these policies can get complex really quickly as as you have all these different decision points. Um, does it have a concept of importing an existing, uh, you know, template or module or something along those lines to help you build out a policy locally? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of things to to help you along the way once your policy starts growing. I think a pretty common pattern is you use helper rules. So if you have a rule called allow, uh, and and that in turn. Again, like once your uh, the conditions start piling up, you want the user to be uh, an admin, or you want the user to have some particular roles. If they are trying to access this or that document, and the request method is post, and and so on and so forth, maybe you want to check for the existence of some headers or what whatnot. So rather than doing that check in each of these allow rules, you just create a helper rule where, where you say like is admin or so the rule name would be like is admin and then your allow rule would just say allow if is admin and so on. So, yeah. so it kind of reads more natural and you can kind of uh, hide away the, the details of, of the rule unless you really need to see it. Gotcha. And it, could you then import that rule into multiple policies, like have it as almost like a library or 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 a package that you would import to your to your policy? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So there's there's uh, this concept of packages and modules where you can refer to a, a package in some other file or module and import have that imported in, into your kind of main package or so. So and there so, are so there are many go. like. Yep. Rego works like Lego, Ned. See what I did there? Oh. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> wow. That was... It's connected. <laughs> All the pieces are falling in. Yes, <laughs> they are. So, Anders, as I build out my policy, and I've, I've maybe I have used some Lego idea to, to build this thing from a bunch of different rules that I've created... How do I test this thing? I'm, I, I need to start in a dev environment before I go to prod, I'm going to assume. Is there some recommended workflow for that? Yeah. And again, I think this is like what, we want to, what we're working with here really is policy as code. That's the concept we're working with here. That's what opened like this kind of embodiment of policy as code. So when, when we start to treat policy as code and not just like a PDF document in some like executive or board member's office drawer, then you can start to gain all the benefits of working with anything else as code, which is of course, like you can work with pull requests, code reviews, you can work with tests, you can work with linters or hmm. like static analysis of your files, maybe get recommendations like, did you know that you can do this instead? So yes, that's one of the main kind of benefits of OPA or policy as code. Like OPA ships with a framework, a very lightweight framework, I should say, for doing unit tests of your policies. So rather than like querying OPA for things, which like for decisions, which you'd be doing like from your service, you can write a test to say like, given that I am, 
a doctor, I should have access to this medical record or things like that. And given that I am, given that I'm trying to access a, a public endpoint, I should, I should be allowed to do so. Or like, given that I'm, yeah, I'm just a, an, an anonymous user, I should not have access to any of these endpoints. So OPA does come with a, a, a unit test framework. And I think like it's for, at least for larger projects, I think it's, it's fairly standard that you'd work with OPA or Rego as you would with any other code. So everything is version controlled. Mm -hmm. uh, you work with code reviews, you work with unit tests, you automate unit tests. So they're always run before uh, anything is as part of the pull request. And yeah, I think like it's, it's Rego, but it's, it's basically, that's the idea behind policy as code, I think. Yeah. Okay. So you'd have some unit tests for the different rules that go into your policy with the expected output uh, based off yeah. of the inputs and then run that unit test and make sure that, it, you know, the policy does what you expect it to do before it rolls into the next phase of testing or, or even out to an environment. Yeah, exactly. And you can work with even with like code coverage. So you can see that this rule over here is not covered by your test. So it probably should be. Right, right, right. Okay. And I'm curious in terms of where folks are checking this, these policies into, do you typically find that the policies get stored along with the application that they're governing or the service they're governing? Or do, is there another, do, are the policies kept in their own repository? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's, I think I've seen, uh, yeah, I've definitely seen both. I think okay. I, I think I, I kind of like I tend to like the the concept of having like a policy repo, but that's more more of a personal preference. Another aspect could be like you want to keep anything related to this application should be kept in a in a single repo. But but then again, like one of the one of the core ideas behind this is that you decouple your policies from your application logic. So the application logic isn't necessarily, or there's not necessarily uh, that kind of hard coupling between policy and your app. So at least to me, it makes sense to keep your policies separate from that. And, and also once you start to have a, a lot of services, you, you're gonna want to have common rules or common like libraries or Rego that you can import and use. So there's, I think there's still gonna be an element where you, where you want some code to be kept separate from from that of your services. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, you know, depending on who's writing the policies, maybe they'd rather have, you know, if it's your security team or your ops team who's actually writing the policies, maybe they want to maintain their own repository of policies and yeah. let the application folks do do their app dev stuff and then, you know, meet in the middle somewhere, in, I guess, in the pipeline. We'll yeah, exactly. The pipeline and have a big yeah, yeah, I think you, you might not need to choose one of the two, but kind of find some some option in between there where you have some policy kind of centralized and, and some responsibilities still like kind of distributed out in the teams. Yeah, I've, I've had some interesting similar debates when it comes to like infrastructure's code and do you store the IAC with the application that it's supporting mm. or do you put it in its mm. own repo? And again, it's like, well, it depends. Are you yeah. structured? <laughs> like, dang it. Can't we just have a solid answer to anything? <laughs> I guess the answer is no. Um, well, this has been fascinating. And I think I really want to dig into OPA some more and maybe even try it out with, you know, my personal favorite, which is Terraform. But uh, yeah, of course you should. Well, I think it, I it, it's, it's worth mentioning that. I mean, we've talked about things that have been about security and security focused kind of stuff. But there's mm -hmm. just so many other things that you can make OPA do if you want, you know, and you mentioned Terraform. This is actually one that as I was digging into the topic, just gra grabbed my attention. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to read Anders from the documentation here, the Terraform use case for OPA. Terraform lets you describe the infrastructure you want and automatically creates, deletes, and modifies your existing infrastructure to match. Right. Okay. We know what Terraform does. OPA makes it possible to write policies that test the changes Terraform is about to make before it makes them. 
Yeah, we don't have time to dive into that now, but I just want to throw that out for the audience to go, if you're only thinking in terms of security, no, there's more to OPA here and more interesting use cases than you're considering if all you're thinking about is authentication and authorization kind of stuff. S super cool tool, really powerful and impressive. So if folks want to know more, find out more, dig deeper into, into OPA, uh, where would you point them? Where's the best places to look? Uh, yeah, sure. I think like the OPA website with the OPA docs are a great place to start. Uh, if you want something more like hands-on for learning Rego, there's also the Styra Academy, which is a free resource provided by Styra, which can have an online, like more video-based content tutorial with like quiz style tests and so on. So, so that's okay. another good resource, but I think like, yeah, the OPA, the OPA website, there's, we have a Slack as well with, I think there's like 6,000 users or so. So it's, okay. it's quite a, a vibrant community. So yeah, I'd be, if anyone has questions or so, I'd be happy to talk there. Yeah. And if people want to find you, uh, do you have a, a Twitter handle that you're active on or, or are you active on LinkedIn? Yeah, I'm both. Uh, it's just my, my first name and followed by my last name. So it's, that's pretty simple enough. Okay. <laughs> so it's Anders Ignit. All right. Well, we will include that in the show notes as well. Anders, thank you so much for appearing as a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners out there, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show. That's the handle that we track. Or if you're not a Twitter person, you're just not down with that. That's cool. I got a fancy website. It's nedinthecloud.com. Go to the contact form and put the info in there. Did you know that you don't have to scream into the technology void alone? The Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a free Slack group open to everyone. You can visit packetpushers.net slash Slack and join. It's a marketing-free zone for engineers to chat, compare notes, tell war stories. You could talk about your latest OPA policies if you want. You can find that all at packetpushers.net slash Slack. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. Welcome to the Tech Bytes portion of today's Day 2 Cloud episode. VMware is our sponsor, and we're discussing vRealize Network Insight Universal. Mm -hmm. New keyword, universal. We've talked about VMware about vRealize Network Insight before, and today's focus is on the SaaS version of vRealize Network Insight and how it can help you with your cloud migration project and some new features that have come up along the way. You definitely have a cloud migration project. We know you do. You've been working on it for quite a while. Yeah, that's the one. You know. Our guests are Martin Smith and Sejung Ha to talk to us today. And Sejung, let's open up with you. We uh we have a new keyword here in the product name, universal. So what does the universal mean in vRealize Network Insight Universal? Yeah, th thanks, Ethan. Thanks, Ned. Uh, so basically, universal means we're trying to keep it a lot simpler for you know the network practitioners out there that are trying to maintain their infrastructure, you know, building out their networks, building out their infrastructure. So we're trying to make uh, you know licensing is just one thing, of course, all the technical things they have to deal with, but we're trying to make it simpler so that they just have to worry about one thing, which is you know the solution that they want to implement and. For customers that have maybe on-premises for network monitoring, or they want to move to a SaaS-based version of network monitoring, Universal will handle all that. So customers can- So, so the Universal part, this, this is a licensing change that we're talking about. We are simplifying licensing. Is that what you're getting at? Yes, that's correct. So basically just keeping it a lot simpler so they don't have to worry about it because it's a lot more flexible. And in terms of you know purchasing or, or consumption, they just do the universal licensing and, you know, we can monitor things like, you know, desktops. Um, we can monitor the cloud infrastructure, native public cloud, you know, so before they would have to sort of have different CCU units, for example, or different VDI units, you know, they would have to have different uh, vCPU for public cloud. So you just get the one license and it handles everything now. So then it's just one thing they don't have to worry about. And then also we know customers have maybe an instance of on-premises deployments um, where they deployed, let's say the solution on-premises, or they want to do it as a SaaS so they don't have to worry about upgrading, for example. So a lot of the you know network monitoring that they have, they deploy 
on-premises, but then they, you know, every now and then, if you want new features or functionality, you have to upgrade it. So this way, as a SaaS solution, you don't have to do that anymore. You can just run the solution and then just as a SaaS service, all the features and functionality, upgrades, improvements, patches, they all just automatically happen on their solution. So that's kind of the universal um, simplification we're talking about. Okay, so it's not just licensing. I mean, the licensing is obviously very important. I don't have to buy all these different and disparate licensing to make sure I'm properly trued up on all the different places I'm deployed. I get the universal license. I know I'm good. But then you added that extra layer that it's not just about the licensing of the endpoints. It's also the solution itself. I could run it on-prem. I could run it as SaaS. And you, you mentioned a few reasons why you might use SaaS. Are there some other benefits to using the SaaS version over a traditional on-prem installation? Oh, yeah. Th there's lots of benefits. Um, you know, we, we've done a lot of things in terms of security. So for the SaaS, you know, those are things you don't have to worry about or harden on yourself on the appliance. You don't have to worry about the sizing of the appliance. You know, because we have different brick sizes, you don't have to worry about powering it. So there's a whole bunch of things that with SaaS that, you know, you'll see that are improved, especially the upgrades, the patches, and then also just getting that feature velocity. So, you know, because we're doing feature releases every three months, every quarter. So rather than, you know, taking some time and scheduling, you know, your weekends to to sort of get those latest features, you don't have to worry about it because on the SaaS side, it's all taken care of. Now, it may or may not matter a lot, Sejong, but if I'm using the SaaS version of this product and I'm in the middle of a cloud migration, is there some advantage where if I'm on-prem, it's you know a little harder and if I'm using the SaaS flavor, it's a little easier to begin dealing with my workloads and monitoring them as I move them up to the cloud? Oh yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we added into the SaaS solution for Feverlized Network Insight Universal was this concept of federation. And you're going to be able to see everything in one dashboard versus looking at different consoles, you know, that you might have in your different regions to see what's happening. So the information is not siloed in terms of troubleshooting. So you can see everything end to end uh, with our SaaS solution. Martin, so maybe that's a maybe that's a time for you to chime in here because uh, I know cloud migrations are something you're you're pretty familiar with. So help us visualize this. If I'm using vRealize Network Insight Universal, that's a mouthful, guys. vRealize Network Insight Universal. I just want to stress that that's that's a big product name. Uh, but if I'm using that product for my cloud migration, and uh, Sejun just introduced this idea of federation, help me uh, help me understand what that monitoring infrastructure is going to look like. Yeah. Um... Virilized Network Inside Universal is indeed a mouthful. I typically call it VRNIU uh, to make it a little bit easier on myself. But uh, basically what Sejong just described is when you're in the middle of a migration or starting a migration, right? So you have on-prem uh, infrastructure, you're monitoring that, you're creating your migration plan, as you said in the beginning, like you're mapping out the application landscape, you're looking at what talks to what, which is what VRNI will tell you. But then you slowly shift that, shift those workloads, shift those applications from your on-prem environments to the cloud, whichever cloud that is. And then VRNI U will actually move with it. So like the universal licensing makes it possible so that you start fully on-prem and then gradually move uh, towards uh, SaaS. And then the federation feature that we unlock with uh, VRLIS Notebook Inside Universal uh, is basically a way to bridge the gap between the migration when you are still half on-prem and still have in the cloud, for example, and not and have different fear and I instances to monitor those environments. Um, so that license pool will move with it. And then the federation feature itself is uh, is a dashboard that you can get into with the fear and I cloud uh, instance where you can see like, how is my VRNI instances behaving? That's one, so you can monitor VRNI itself. So if you've got multiple of those instances, you wanna make sure that they're healthy, but also how is the infrastructure that those VRNI instances are monitoring doing? So like uh, the example that Sejong mentioned, like we have a customer that went uh, from a global footprint. They had data centers in, in Americas, uh, EMEA and APJ. 
all different fear and I instances because you want to deploy those as close to the um, the infrastructure as possible. And then they merged all of those um, uh, the data centers into their cloud infrastructure. So they moved their workloads from those on-prem data centers to the cloud. They both used Fear and I to do the uh, the migration, and we can talk about that a little bit. But they also used uh, Fear and I Universal in order to make sure that they can seamlessly flow all of those instances and then migrate them to the SaaS solutions that we have, so that they didn't like have to worry about what licenses do I have where. They just have one big pool. That's the um, the the entire premise of of Universal. Okay, and I think for a lot of organizations, they're never going to be fully in the cloud, right? They're going to be in this sort of intermediate intermediate step. Well, some stuff is going to stay on-prem. Some of it is going to migrate up to the cloud. And being able to monitor that status of the applications I have in both locations is going to be huge in one federated dashboard. Uh, Martin, you, you mentioned something about how it can make migrations simpler. Uh, can you dig into that a little bit more? Because I'm I'm curious what aspects of VRNIU would help make the actual migration of things simpler. Basically, what VRNI does as a product, it's uncovering all of the things that are running within a network. So it has application discovery, for example. So you can look at the vSphere workloads or the cloud workloads in order to make up what an application um, consists of. And that, that's like a typical application model. So you have an application name with a tiering model, uh, like app, web, database, uh, and then the workloads within those uh, those tiers, right? That discovery is huge within VRNI because typically like you're looking at your CMDB or you're looking at your uh, vSphere environment. And well, if someone knows exactly what is running within their infrastructure, that's I'd like to meet that person because I've never able been able to put my finger on like yeah, a company no. that actually work <laughs> knows what's running, right? Uh, so application discovery is huge in that sense of un- uncovering what's actually running, but then also uh, mapping out dependencies within that application landscape. So it'll be able to tell you, or VRNI is able to tell you, that this application is talking to these other applications, but also these end users those uh, IoT devices, uh, um, those printers, those, those cloud workloads. So every single connection is basically logged within VRNI and you're able to uncover that pretty easily by using that application discovery and creating those groups within VRNI to show those connections. That That's one, but then also it goes into like how much data is being sent between these applications. So if you're targeting a piece of your infrastructure, uh, like 20, 50 workloads within your infrastructure that you want to pick up in one migration window, you will be able to group those into a migration wave, as we call them. And then you will see the actual requirements for that migration wave. You will be able to tell like how much bandwidth do I need between the destination cloud and my on-prem when I've picked this migration wave up and actually migrated them to uh, to the cloud. Uh, so you will be able to uh, see what kind of inter- internet traffic is uh, is going through these uh, these workloads. So also kind of predicting your egress traffic, which comes back to cost management a little bit even. Uh, but you will also see the, uh, the amount of traffic that you need between the end users and those applications, right? So if it's an internal application, you also want to scale out your data center into connect properly uh, before you um, hit, hit the migrate button incessantly. Right, right. So this really helps you plan out not just the migration of the applications itself, but the network infrastructure that's needed to support it at both ends and for the end users. Because I'm just thinking about, yeah, an internal app that everybody's accessing because they're maybe kind of going in through the same remote office connection to, to a central uh, point, now that application has moved up to the cloud, am I going to send my users through that central point and then up to the cloud? Or is there a way to just send them directly to that cloud instance so all that traffic isn't flowing through my data center now that the application's not even there? Exactly. So Fear and I can uncover the requirements that you need when you uh, when you migrate an app So you, or just looking at the specific application, it can tell you how much uh, network uh, capacity it needs. And then based off of that information, you can indeed uh, 
create your network diagram architecture in in accordance to like what the requirements are instead of uh, kind of fat fingering it and and trying to just see in production how much the network traffic will uh, will come up well martine if uh, folks are interested in learning more about vrealize network insight universal what is the best what's the best way to go about that so i think we'll uh, we'll put a bunch of links in the show notes uh, but basically my favorite way is to just play around with it and there's two ways to do that. Um, one of them is using the uh, the free 30-day trial that we have. So you can just sign up for VRNI Cloud, get an instance yourself, and then deploy a collector. And then, well, you're off to the races. You can start monitoring uh, the environment. Or you can try our hands-on labs, which is basically a simulated environment where you have a complete demo system to your um, availability. And you can just play around with VRNI itself without having to set anything up except logging into the um, the HUL website. Excellent. And we will have the links to all of those things in the show notes. You can find those at packetpushers.net or day2cloud.io. So our thanks to VMware for sponsoring today's TechBytes segment of today's Day 2 Cloud episode. And if you ring up VMware to take vRealize Network Insight Universal out for a test drive, make sure to tell them that you heard about it on Day 2 Cloud, part of the Packet Pushers podcast network. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.